What a strange metamorphosis. A beast with two backs, fused together, both something and nothing. Oh, even worse, both two things and nothing at the same time. This is where we were in the last episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. This is where we still are. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and again, this is the podcast Walking with Dante. We are slow walking through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are in lower hell. We have been in the passage, Canto 25 of Inferno, lines 34 through 78, in the Pit of the Thieves, in the Landscape of Fraud. We were there last time. We explicated the passage and talked about how the passage works, where it comes from, where pieces of it are from, what parts are Dante's, what parts are Ovid's, some kind of ironies in the text, questions that the passage raises. But now I want to talk about the implications of this. So this is the second podcast episode on this passage from Inferno. It's worthy of two, probably worthy of 10 episodes. It is so complicated. Well, first of all, let me say, if you don't know where we are, at least go back one episode and catch us because, wow, we are in a crazy place. But uh, this is what I want to do now going forward. I want to read you the passage, but without any sound effects or any voices or anything, I just want it clean because I think that you might be able to hear implications if it's just clean now the second time. And then I want to talk through six wild implications of this passage, some sitting up on the surface and some farther deeper down inside of it. So here we go. Inferno, Canto 25, lines 34 through 78. That centaur galloped by as Virgil was speaking. Then down below us, three spirits came up, whom neither my guide nor I noticed at first until they hollered, who are you guys? At this, we stopped telling tales and turned our attention to them and them alone. I didn't know who they were, but it came to pass, as it does through sheer coincidence a lot of the time, that one of them mentioned the name of another by saying, Where in the world did Chianfa get off to? That's why I, to make my guide pay attention, set a finger from my chin to my nose. If, reader, you're hesitant to believe what I'm about to say, it's no surprise, because I who saw it can hardly permit myself to believe it. While I held my eyebrows up to get a good look at them, a serpent with six feet suddenly launched itself onto one of them and hugged him tight. Its middle feet got wrapped around his gut. Its front feet took hold of both his arms. Then it stuck its fangs first into one cheek, then into the other its back feet stretched down his thighs and it jammed its tail between them curving it upward along his butt ivy never gripped a tree trunk as tightly as this nasty beast put its tendrils all around the guy's body then as if they were made of hot wax they started to fuse together mixing their colors until neither seemed what he or it had been at the start it's the same way that when paper burns, a dark brown color moves in front of a flame where it's not yet charred black, but all the white is long dead. The other two spirits were looking on and each one cried out, wow, Agnolo, how you morph. See, you're already neither two things nor one. 
By that point, the two heads had become one, as the two expressions fused into one face until both were lost. Two arms got made out of four limbs. The thighs, along with the calves, the belly, and the chest, became body parts that were never seen before. Each former feature was obliterated. This perverse image was now both two things and nothing. Such as it was, it went away with slow steps. As I said, I'd like to talk about six implications of this passage, some sitting up on the surface of the passage and some a little below it in the depths of the passage that we're going to have to fork out (laughs) by digging just a little bit. Let's get started. The first thing I want to say about this passage is, for me, it's important to note that this is perverse. This perverse image was now both two things and nothing. And I think the poet is at some pains to tell us that this is a perversity now, this fused thing. And we talked about this last time. There is a sexuality, an eroticism in this passage. For me, without a doubt, this passage has a homoeroticism to it that results in a perversity. I would tell you that sitting on the top of this passage is, well, to use modern words, a gay panic. Let me explain this for a second. There's a lot of commentators in the modern world who want to make Dante gay. I do not think Dante is gay, first, because gay is a political statement. Gay is a statement that one makes in reference to the dominant culture and its power structure. I don't think that there are, well, here's a controversial sentence, I don't think there are any gays in 1300. There are homosexuals. That is not a political statement. That's a statement of sexual preference. There's a lot of modern talk about somehow Dante's relationship with Brunetto Latini, remember him, back up above us, and then later when we get to Purgatorio, there's going to come a moment when, again, more talk about uh, Dante's changing notions of homosexuality. Fair enough. However, I think part of the terror of this passage is it is founded on the quote unquote, and believe me, it pains me to say it, perversity of gay panic. There is a kind of homosexual eroticism in the passage, and what results from that is a perverse thing. So to all those critics who make the claim that Dante somehow is a closet case, I always want to point them right here to Canto 25 and say, no, read the passage carefully. I think our poet expresses uh, his fears and his panic right here on the surface of this passage. Okay, what else can we say about this passage? What happens to the self here? That's my second question. What happens to who a self is? If Chianfa has become this serpent, and I would tell you that you can't actually prove that, but if Chianfa has been morphed into this serpent, and then if Agnello becomes a fusion of himself and Chianfa, or even if he doesn't, if he becomes a fusion of himself and one of the snakes of the pit, what in the world happens to the self? Now listen, in 
the 21st century, this is easy. Nobody that I know of thinks the self is stable. We don't believe in a stable self anymore. Listen, if, you, if, you, if we just had to talk about it, I would tell you that what I think the self is is a collection of narratives and narrative fragments. These narratives, stories, things that have happened to you that you have turned into stories, stories that you've heard, Bible, myths, family stories, family history, lover stories, husband stories, wife stories, all these stories get fused up and you make a very... Mm, at times awkward and gawky quilt out of the stories that you have heard and the stories you've told yourself and that's what you are that is yourself it's the looping of stories in your synapses however in Dante's day, this is not the case. The self is created by God, and the soul is created by God. And what in the world is going on in this passage? If the soul is a creation of God, how can it morph into other things? And once it morphs into other things, can you pull it back out again? If Chanfa was this reptile, and then the reptile fused with Agnolo, or even if it's just Agnolo and a reptile, where does one start and the other begin? Can you separate them? It doesn't seem like it from the passage. The self suddenly seems like an unstable thing. How can you then worry about the damnation and salvation of an unstable thing? This is why many critics claim that Dante gets in over his head in these passages because he is a man who is going to believe without a doubt that the soul is created by God and that it's savable or damnable based on its actions. But if the soul itself is morphable, if it is unstable, then what is it that you're damning? And what is it that you're finally saving? And these critics would say that Dante is at such a rush to outdo Ovid that he finds himself at a place that is theologically untenable for a Roman Catholic of any age. This is why people think Dante gets out of his depth. Now, I don't think that, but I do think that Dante is playing with the nature of the self because he's ultimately playing with the nature of poetry. But let's hold that and let's move on to the third implication of this passage. What exactly is fusing here? Souls? I mean, it seems like this is a material transformation. It seems like that there's some kind of, I don't know, Wes Craven nightmare movie story here in which two things are fusing into each other. But is that the case here? Aren't these just souls? Aren't How can they have a material transformation. According to Aristotle, which Dante would know through St. Thomas Aquinas particularly, matter must have form. Form is intrinsic to matter. In fact, matter cannot exist without form. We have to ask ourselves, what is the world is fusing here? If there's souls fusing, then it can't be a physical metamorphosis. But boy, does it ever seem like a physical metamorphosis because it's a physical metamorphosis in Ovid. And there's so much emphasis on butts and thighs and arms and legs and chest. Do you know there are more references to the body in this canto than anywhere else in Inferno? So much reference to the physicality of the self, calves and chests. Once again, 
We arrive at the point in which some critics claim that Dante gets out of his depth. Listen, we don't have to save Dante. We can say that Dante gets out of his depth. Many, many eminent Dantistas do. I think that there may be ways that Dante is getting out of his depth here, but I think he's doing it for specific reasons. So let's go on and talk about more implications of this passage. According to Robert Hollander, this passage is a blasphemous version of the incarnation. Let me back up and explain that. In Christian theology, the incarnation is that Jesus, up in heaven as God, empties himself of his godhood but maintains his divinity and comes down and takes human form as Jesus. So really, the second person of the Trinity goes through the kenosis, the emptying, and the emptying then comes down and takes on a human body. And this human body is Jesus of Christian theology, the Messiah. This melding of two natures is here blasphemously inserted into the text. The Christian definition of Jesus is that he is fully God and fully human. In other words, there's no diminishment of the godness. There is an emptying of the godness, but no diminishing of it. I know that's very hard to understand. And that inside of that, this person who walked around the earth was fully God and fully man. That's Orthodox Christian theology. So this then would be some kind of blasphemous inversion of that in which the incarnation is turned into an infernal fusion. According to Robert Hollander, this only makes sense because Vani Fucci, when he caught fire, turned to cinders as reconstituted, was a blasphemous turn on the resurrection. So we have a blasphemous resurrection. Now we have a blasphemous incarnation in our metamorphoses. So there is a theological trope running around underneath all of this in the seventh Malabolgia. And interestingly, those blasphemous inversions are happening in a pit of thieves. So there is a kind of way that Dante is taking, dare I say stealing, taking theology and inverting it and turning it into his own infernal version of of it, metamorphosizing long-standing theology, inverting it and turning it into this moment with the thieves. There's yet more to it. On to our fifth point. One could argue in the same way that this text is a literary blasphemy. That is, it's a fusion of Dante and Ovid. We talked about this last time, that the metamorphosis itself arises out of Ovid's metamorphoses and hermaphroditus. And yet, at the same time, the poet then offers the metaphors that explain the metamorphoses. So there is a way in which there is all kinds of blasphemous literary inversions going on down to silencing Virgil. These figures, Ovid and Virgil, are all authority figures for Dante. 
they may not be as high an authority as Thomas Aquinas, and they are certainly not as high authority as the Bible, but they are still authority figures, and he would be turning them on their head. And so this is a bit of literary blasphemy that's going on here. Let me let me explain this, and I want to carefully tease this out because it's hard to see in the modern world. In the modern world, we have come over in the West, we have come over the Romantic Revolution, and the question of where authority lies has changed. Now in the modern world, authority has to lie in the text you write. You may cite all kinds of sources from the past, but the authority for your text has to be assumed inside your own text. That's how all books, fiction and nonfiction, are written post-Romantic Revolution. I think of Jane Smiley's um, novel, A Thousand Acres. That novel is a retelling of King Lear. It's a brilliant novel, but it's a retelling of King Lear. But the authority structure for that novel, A Thousand Acres, exists in the novel, A Thousand Acres, and in the voices of the characters. And that it is reflecting Lear in the background is just deepening the layers of the meaning of the novel. If that novel had been written pre-romantic revolution if somebody <laughs> didn't make so sense if somebody had written a thousand acres in 1600 if shakespeare had written a thousand acres in 1600 well i can't shakespeare can't use his own text can he well it doesn't matter let's pretend some guy some poet wrote a thousand acres in 1600 or 1700 and they based it on king lear king lear would be seen as the authority that establishes the narrative of A Thousand Acres because King Lear is the great text sitting behind it. And all the reason A Thousand Acres exists as a novel would be sitting back in King Lear. It's the same thing for Dante. The reasons his text exists sits back in Virgil and Ovid. He himself now is starting to step out farther and farther on his own. And so this literary blasphemy is getting carried farther and farther down the line, but it may be even crazier than that. Does this exquisitely wrought, careful metamorphosis inside of Canto 25 expose the poet's very fears? That is, if poetry is a fusion of classical theft and contemporary metamorphosis, as we discussed, then might my theft and metamorphosis end up as a perversity? Or here's a bigger one. Might my taking Virgil, the poet Dante is saying, and Ovid and fusing them into my text, might I end up with a perverse thing that is now both two things and nothing. In other words, my fear is that I'm going to use the classical poets to create my text, and if I'm not careful, I'm going to end up with a perverse literary text in which what I write is either an unholy alliance of classical sources and my imagination, or in the end, it's just going to be so muddled, it's going to be, to use the word from this passage, nothing. After all, 
isn't that what this is? Oh, this pushes it even farther. Oh, I love this stuff. Oh, just we're kicking that ball farther down the road at every second. Oh, I love this. Listen to this. Isn't that what this text is? I mean, after all, you don't really think that Dante saw this, do you? You don't really think that he was standing there in hell and that hell has nine circles and that he's in the seventh pit of the eighth circle. You don't really think he saw this, do you? So his text here really is two things and nothing. This didn't happen. It is nothing. Like all imaginative texts, it is at its core nothing. And yet it is also a classical, a classically authoritative-based text out of Dante's own imagination. So this is what his text is. It is this beast with two backs. It is this fusion. It is two things and nothing at the same time. Well, it might also be his fear. I think there's so much meta going on in this passage that while I do hold that Dante is overplaying his hand, and I do think the theological implications for what is the self and what is a soul and what can be damned and what can be saved if these are all ultimately changeable and what exactly is fusing here and how can souls have what appear to be a physical metamorphosis well i do think that dante may be overplaying his hand i think what he's doing is playing with his own fears and his own acknowledgement of his own text with his own fears in tow. And therefore, I forgive him the overstep because I wouldn't be this brave to say, holy crow, what happens if I take Ovid's story and I stitch on my own metaphors and I end up with some weird unholy alliance that's two things, Ovid and me, or maybe in the end, it's just nothing. It's just some perversity that lumbers off and nobody pays attention to it. Down here in the pit of the thieves, the poet comes across his own terror. And there's more. There's more ahead. We had to give this passage two episodes because it's just too insane to even think through on one episode i so wish we were together in a room with coffee wine with i don't know a scotch and we could talk more about this because there is so much more to be said about this if you'd like to say more you can find me on twitter under my own name at mark scarborough you can hashtag any comment walking with dante and i'll respond to you as quickly as i possibly can i am so glad you're on this walk with me subscribe to get more and more and more down this road because listen this thing is gonna get crazier we're not out of keto 25 yet there's another metamorphosis ahead of us and it's even more insane than this one with even more insane implications for both theology and poetry all bound up together in dare we say it the hubris of our great poet i'm mark scarborough and this is walking with dante